a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, speaking to you from Dinant in Belgium. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson. I'm in Brussels today. Today, on our last episode before our August break, we're talking about NATO, and when we talk about NATO, we also talk about security in Europe and the Baltics. We should understand that security situation in our region is not improving, is not stable, it's deteriorating. Just about two weeks ago, uh, NATO held its annual summit. It held it in the Lithuanian capital, Vilnius. In the face of Russia's war in Ukraine, holding a NATO summit in the capital of not just one of its newer alliance members, but in the capital of a country that had been claimed by the Soviet Union for decades before breaking free as the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, was surely meant to send a message of unwavering commitment to NATO's easternmost allies. The summit's most unequivocal deliverable was Turkey's long-delayed OK, although it still awaits a parliamentary vote, of Sweden's membership in the alliance. But those who had hoped that NATO would also welcome Ukraine left Vilnius disappointed. To be sure, alliance member states had long signaled that Ukrainian NATO membership, while in the cards eventually, was not in the cards at this time. The challenge in Vilnius then was how to affirm commitment to aiding Ukraine as long as war continues, while also bridging divides between fundamentally those uh, alliance members who believe that Ukraine in the alliance is going to make Europe safer, and those who believe that, at least for the time being, it would actually make the continent less safe. But the war in Ukraine and its seismic impact on European security also does not obviate other challenges facing Europe and NATO. Even before the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine, China's increasing assertiveness in the region and on the global stage fostered concern among members and some disagreement about what NATO's role could or should be. To talk about this, we're really excited today to welcome on to the show uh, Dovilla Chocoliena. Since 2016, uh, Dovilla has been a member of the Lithuanian Parliament for the Social Democratic Party of Lithuania, where, among other things, she sits on the Committee for National Security and Defence. Uh, Dovilla, welcome to War and Peace. Mm, hello. Hello, both of you. So, the NATO summit in Vilnius concluded two weeks ago, thereabouts. What are your main takeaways from the summit? Do you think it was a success? Well, it was a very complicated summit, uh, as we probably all agree, and it had very different outcomes. So the outcomes that were related to uh, regional security, when we talk about uh, Lithuania, Baltic states, or uh, our region of uh, Baltic states and Poland, then, of course, uh, the outcomes were quite positive, I'd say, in certain aspects, very positive. So first of all, I mean the adapted uh, regional <clears throat> defense plans, because for us, the change of the concept uh, from deterrence by punishment to deterrence by denial was essential, uh, especially since we are such a small state, I mean, Lithuania. And then for us, deterrence by punishment could mean that there probably could be nothing to retake. 
And since we have had already two occupations by Russia, and we know how extremely cruel they are, so for us, uh, this was both uh, in military aspect and in uh, emotional and cognitive aspect, when we talk about our society, very, very important. Uh, second very positive outcome was that related to these plans, uh, the strengthening of the eastern flank was something very long awaited and, in my opinion, long due. So um, just before the summit, we had a agreement with uh, uh, Germany that their brigade will not be in Lithuania stationed on rotational basis, but will be permanently stationed. And that means that uh, they will be here with families and children and etc. And as, as I talked just before the summit with the Minister of Defense of Germany, he said that we are willing to do something for you that Americans did for us in the times of Cold War. When uh, uh, defending Berlin, they were there with their families, with their children, and that meant schools, kindergartens, and etc., and when we talk about it politically, it is a little bit different uh, obligation or engagement when uh, your ally is there, you know, to stay, when it's uh, a permanent stationing rather than rotational. And in that sense, uh, I think that also a message to our society is important because, as you know, uh, for example, currently when we have these discussions about uh, the um, dislocation of a part of the Wagner group to Belarus, for uh, our society, the conceived feeling of security is also very important. And then uh, the third moment, of course, was Sweden. Of course, we were all very, very hopeful and happy on the first day when uh, Turkish President Erdogan said that, okay, so uh, uh, he yields and there will be no more um, uh, disagreement regarding uh, ratification of uh, protocols of uh, Sweden's accession to NATO in, in Parliament of Turkey. Now we've, we're back to the game, I mean, and probably it will take a bit of time. But nevertheless, uh, Sweden accessing NATO means that in the Baltic Sea, there would be no more neutral states. And that means that Kaliningrad region would become a headache for Russia, just like uh, Lithuania was, uh, or Baltic states were a headache for NATO in the sense of defendability, because it's not only about the sea, but it's also about the airspace. It's also about uh, accessibility for allies and etc., etc. I mean, I don't think we have time to go into the details. And then, uh, so that was about the positive side, and there were also some more things. But the negative side was that we had, uh, well, different expectations regarding invitation of Ukraine to NATO. And some members of the bloc uh, were, well, inclined to believe that a miracle could happen and invitation, and I want to underline not accession, but invitation of Ukraine to the bloc could happen during Vilnius NATO summit, whereas others uh, still believe that it may escalate the situation. And of course, uh, well, the main disagreement probably is with the United States, where Mr. Biden, or rather I'd say Mr. Sullivan, feel that inviting Ukraine to NATO might uh, aggravate situation for all of us, which we don't agree with. And so we'll probably continue work until the DC summit. Thank you, Tovala. There's a lot in which you've said, and I think for listeners who are less familiar with the terminology and the issues 
in European security and specifically in the Baltics. Can you talk a little bit, how do you understand deterrence by punishment, which you described as the prior approach, and how is deterrence by denial going to be different? Okay, so if we talk about uh, audience uh, uh, of people who don't work in security area, then I think the main uh, difference for us to understand is uh, deterrence by punishment would be that when uh, an ally is attacked, at first, well, the country should start defending by itself and then allies come to its aid. When we... um, talk about deterrence by denial, it means that nobody is waiting, first of all, until the integrity of territory is physically breached. And of course, there is no waiting time for allies to appear in adequate numbers. But rather, list of indicators is being used. And as soon as indicators become um, obvious, or at least there is a reasonable suspicion that integrity of territory may be breached, at once reinforcements of allies' forces are being deployed to the country at risk of being breached. So that's one difference. Another difference is, in our case, the strengthening of eastern flank already, right now, even without the list of indicators. And that is both on multinational and bilateral uh, grounds. So when we talk about bilateral grounds, it is uh, a German brigade, even though, of course, it is integrated into the NATO, and that means multinational defense plans, the NATO block defense plans, but also it is based largely on our bilateral agli- agreement, um, where Germany is uh, fortifying its presence in Lithuania significantly. And we also have uh, American troops on rotational basis in Lithuania as well. Uh, And that means that we are going to have a much larger amount of allies on our ground all the time, despite what indicators will be showing. So much more troops always. And also as soon as the indicators show considerable threat, rapid reinforcements arrive as soon as possible before any possible breach of our territory. Yeah, I think just to give um, audience members a little bit more context, I mean, the idea from deterrence theory is that deterrence by denial means that the adversary doesn't try anything because they know they would fail. Deterrence by punishment means the adversary doesn't try anything because they know it would really, really hurt to try. And you know, I think Doval explained how this works in this particular context, right? They know that they would fail because there is going to be a rapid response by the alliance as a whole that would prevent them taking any territory, not that they will then be punished as the alliance takes back any territory they've had and responds later and perhaps escalates further. So just, uh, just wanted to make that, um, that clear, uh, from a terminological standpoint. I want to ask another question about the impact of the war on how Lithuania and its neighbors see security. I mean, obviously, it's changed how Lithuania's neighbors, Finland and Sweden, see their security. But I'm curious if Lithuania's own perception of its security or insecurity changed since February of 2022. Well, I can for sure say that every party in Lithuania sees now defense and security as a priority. I myself am vice president of the Lithuanian Social Democratic Party. 
and chair of our in-party defense committee. And uh, social democrats have been oriented for decades on social affairs, uh, on the soft issues when we talk about the state. But, uh, well, for the few years I've been uh, uh, talking to my colleagues that we will have to... um, to focus our attention on defense. And uh, February of last year really proved my point very sadly and very efficiently to everyone who was not really into a security area before. So we, uh, first of all, have a very clear uh, all-party understanding and we signed last year a new national agreement on defense by all political parties that are elected to the parliament. So in uh, uh, one party, uh, at the last moment, they made their political statement that they support the agreement. I mean, that was our national like policy, a little bit of games, okay? But uh, seriously speaking, um, everyone agreed that, first of all, we need to rapidly invest and strengthen our defense capabilities that also we have to keep uh, as uh, um, uh, the minimum level of our defense 2.5%, not 2%, with the goal to go higher. Also, we've had uh, agreements regarding uh, certain um, uh, technical issues regarding our uh, strengthening of our military capabilities, uh, including, for example, uh, host nation support, uh, uh, capacity expanding, and etc., etc., so that's on political level. Now, on society's level, uh, we've had a lot of uh, emotional reaction, of course. So first of all, uh, the importance of NATO, whereas for Lithuania, being a member of NATO was always important. I mean, from the very first day that we regained our independence, of course, it has become um, an issue of uh, extreme urgency for people to... Uh, For everyone, it was very, very clear that we need to become a member of NATO as soon as possible. But now it has become real. I mean, for people now, it has become a very real uh, uh, need to be sure uh, that NATO is going to defend us. Uh, At the same time, how happy we are that we are in NATO. When we look at Ukraine, I mean, uh, well, it's, uh, it's, you know, heart shattering to see the difference. And also there were questions. And uh, as uh, our Estonian colleague uh, has put very clearly that uh, why deterrence by punishment is not an option and a very, very bad option for such small states as ourselves. So I'm glad that in the last 12 months, we also had the best understanding of the security of the small Baltic states within the whole NATO bloc as ever. I mean, we are understood better than ever. So that's also a very big change. And also when we talk about uh, understanding of our security and defense, I think what is really changed is uh, mentality of a small village is being changed. Lithuania has probably for a very long time imagined that, I mean, there's Lithuania, there is EU, there is America, and I mean, something else maybe is happening in the world. So now our people are much more aware of, for example, China's threats towards Taiwan, how it may geopolitically affect our own regional security because of the United States, and why do we need to invest in our defense really rapidly? Is there a real sense, do you think, that the risk of a Russian Russian aggression is greater now than it was before February last year? 
So, um, openly speaking, uh, for our society, yes, of course, they feel that the risk uh, since last February has grown, especially in the first weeks after the invasion into Ukraine, and especially after some of the experts were so sure that Ukraine won't be able to hold on longer than days or weeks, then yes, uh, um, the end of February was very, very stressful. I mean, there were people who were, well, um, worried if they have to leave the country. There were people who were really buying uh, buckwheat. I mean, as I know, for United States, it's, uh, it's toilet paper. For Lithuanians, it's buckwheat. It's, I mean, different uh, different expressions of panic. Uh, of course, after the first week of invasion, the moods changed. But still, uh, I, I'd say that probably half of our society took investments into defense and the uh, previous uh, minimum of defense of 2% as something, I mean, which is being done... Um, without giving it much thought. Now, I mean, majority of our society is really interested what is being done for our defense, how we are spending money, how do we plan to expand capabilities of our defense, etc., etc. Because, yes, uh, seeing what is happening in Ukraine has changed the perception of uh, immediate or midterm or long-term actions of Russia that may not be rational, that may be stupid unjustified, unnecessary, but still may happen. So as you look ahead um, into the future, do you think the focus of NATO is going to change further beyond uh, what we've seen over the last year and a half? Um, do you think that the alliance is really going to be primarily focused on deterring Russian aggression? Or are there other things uh, that it needs to be able to do? So um, I'd say there are two aspects that are important here. So first of all, I started to feel recently that many people forgot why the alliance was established that it was a defensive alliance from Russia. I mean, or against Russia. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not a native English speaker. But in this sense, uh, people started to forget that the main variable in defense of NATO bloc is Russia. I mean, it has become uh, really weird when we've had these discussions uh, regarding uh, membership of the new states and why it's needed and what are we going to do uh, with that uh, increased defense capabilities and etc. So first of all, guys, it was established to defend us from Russia and it still is a defense block to defend us from Russia. So that should not be forgotten. On the other hand, uh, and I think in Munich Security Conference, uh, which I was... Uh, really interested uh, to attend what uh, was told uh, openly and behind curtains and, uh, you know, uh, black and white uh, in the written documents and verbally in different discussions that Europe needs to invest in its defense capabilities very rapidly and very extensively because basically NATO bloc is United States plus something <laughs> and United States cannot be the sole guarantee of our security if we do not also carry at least, you know, some of our weight 
We are punching so much below our weight and we really need to do more. We can do more and we need to do more. And one of the illustrations I see, a good examples of uh, changing of that mentality is Germany. I mean, they were economic power and they were doing everything possible to ensure us that militarily they are nothing. That they are definitely not only not a threat, but they are probably doing nothing, 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 as much nothing as possible. So they have not only changed their uh, political uh, convictions and started to supply Ukraine with weapons and munitions to become one of the top donors. I'm not, not talking humanitarily or financially, because they are, but also militarily. But at the same time, in the regional defense plans, uh, they are also taking up a role which is so significantly bigger than it was before that, I mean, it makes me as a Lithuanian very, very happy. But also looking geopolitically, it shows that change in European perception of its own responsibility for its own security has changed irreversibly. Do you think that change is reflected across the continent? I mean, throughout the European Union, certainly before Ukraine, there was resistance to the idea of strategic autonomy, the idea that Europe would have its own defence capabilities. And um, obviously those countries that are closer to Ukraine sort of feel the, the, the security risks much stronger. But, you know, is there a sort of united uh, vision in Europe around what European security cooperation should look like? So uh, we must be realists and also um, not to be too self-critical uh, or self-deprecating, I would say. So on one hand, uh, of course, there are disagreements within our bloc, as it's very, very obvious. But at the same time, neither Russia nor China expected probably half the unity that we have demonstrated over the past uh, one year and a half, because our ability to uh, for team play, both in providing support to Ukraine and in strengthening our own capabilities, is really, I mean, I'd say much better than expected. And not only by our enemies, but also by ourselves. But Europe is bureaucratic and slow, and uh, uh, pluralism is probably a very, very... Well, it's essential for democracy, but sometimes uh, it uh, slows down the processes to the level where they start to be dangerous. So in that sense, I think we are doing much better than we thought we will. At the same time, we do have different uh, points of view onto, whole, on, on, onto the whole situation, us being the frontline state. I mean, we're sitting next to Belarus, which is being uh, used as a platform for attack on Ukraine and Lukashenko reading from his you know, funny notebook about the so-called excursion of Wagner to Poland, to Zeshov and etc., it seems a bit funny and maybe tragicomic, but on the other hand, uh, it's not very funny. And yes, of course, for us, the situation is much more dire than, let's say, for, I don't know, Portugal or France. At the same time, president of France, who was such an uh, advocate of strategic autonomy. So um, have you heard him speak about strategic autonomy in the last 12 months in the sense that he was speaking about it before that? I mean, it uh, really changed the position that... Uh, United States, you are very welcome to the table. Can we discuss uh, our possibility to defend ourselves, you know, as a team? 
I think that's what is strategic autonomy now, is that we need to punch uh, at least somewhere around our weight, somewhere where we could uh, be not as miserable if United St- when the United States will have to divert its attention to Asia so much more than it has diverted it now. So basically, uh, we are a better team transatlantically as we were ever, and we are a better team uh, south and uh, north and west and east-wise than we were a couple of years ago. If, is there a lot of room for improvement? Yes, there is. For example, unfortunately, the geopolitical processes have not stopped. The climate crisis is uh, ongoing, I mean, rapidly. And we are going to deal with some very, very difficult uh, refugee-related challenges quite soon. And these wars, I mean, the war which is ongoing now and the war which is on the brink of starting may very well coincide with the huge and terrible refugee crisis which the southern states of Europe are really justifiably afraid of. So we are really resolving very many issues, a lot of challenges at the same time. The war which is on the brink of starting, which war do you mean there? Taiwan. Taiwan. And you've been very vocal about the threat of a coming war. How do you see Europe's role in uh, deterring uh, and responding if deterrence fails? Uh, Well, um, ideally, it would be nice if we would strengthen our defenses enough so that we would not be a distraction for United States because Russia is very good at using windows of opportunity. And I think I've talked about that in some meetings that we were together. And uh, uh, we should not underestimate Russia's ability to divert attention, to take actions that were not expected, to, as I said, uh, really use windows of opportunity and to uh, play certain games that uh, sometimes present uh, allies with a sort of a checkmate situation. So I wish that we were ready and we would not hang as a stone on the neck of the United States when it will have to deal with China. Having in mind that China already has come to the uh, stage where it is openly talking about preparation for the war. For example, it's declaring to its society that Chinese society must prepare for the coming war, etc., etc., that China is also upping uh, its uh, supplies, already including military supplies to Russia in Russia's invasion to Ukraine. Well, I see that situation is getting, uh, it's aggravated. It's really getting aggravated. So first of all, to be ready. Secondly, for us probably to be able to help United States in talking to other um, uh, global partners, because Europe and America is not everything there is in the world. We definitely have not had yet uh, uh, amicable agreement with India regarding certain issues that we need to. Latin America is uh, the unloved brother number four. I don't even know how to call that situation. It's really unfair, unjust, and well, I, in my opinion, strategically blind. So we will need to maybe be able to help there if we are able to, I don't know, gather our guts together. And President of France stops going to salute military parades in China. That would be very helpful, I'd say, in that situation. Okay, Dovola, I think that's uh, going to have to be the note we end this on. But uh, thank you so, so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Olya. Thank you, Alisa.
You can follow Davila on Twitter. She's at DChocolienne. And you can also read Crisis Group's work on Europe, NATO, and the evolving security situation. Uh, to do that, check out our website, uh, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter, where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Alyssa is at Alyssa Jobson, and I'm at Olya Olaker. And I'm also at Olya Olaker on the proliferating mass of uh, social media platforms that are taking shape um, as Twitter evolves. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Figursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. This has been the last episode before our summer break. Uh, We are going to be off in August, but we'll be back in September for a new season. And we are looking forward to welcoming you all back uh, again as well at that point. Until then, though, goodbye. Goodbye until September.